listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 1st, 2023. I'm Mallory from Drake University. Here's our first story. Iowa cities plead for delay. While good news for taxpayers' wallets, local governments in financial lurch due to error, Des Moines representatives for Iowa cities, counties, school districts, and community colleges urged lawmakers Monday to delay for a year changing the property tax rollback rate for residential properties to fix an oversight from a previously passed property tax reform package. What would be an unexpected relief for taxpayers could mean local governments have to scramble to find money to support the public services they plan for the next budget year, mayors, city managers, and lobbyists told lawmakers. City, county, and school officials asked for the delay to allow local governments to absorb the financial blow with more time to plan for adjustments and soften the impact. Our members feel a little bit like Charlie Brown and the football, said Noah Tapper, the lobbyist representing the Metropolitan Coalition that represents Iowa's largest cities, including Cedar Rapids. The goalpost moved, Tapper said. The change proposed in this bill are logistically just an unworkable unworkable they go wrong they go the wrong direction in terms of transparency they force things to be rushed we would love to see a delay kicking this out a year to allow the process to unfold in a more methodical manner Lawmakers in 2013 passed a property tax cut package that, among other provisions, gradually lowered property taxes on multifamily residential units like apartments, nursing homes, mobile parks, mobile home parks, and manufactured home communities, where they would be taxed at the same rate as all residential property by 2022. And in 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law including multi-residential properties in the residential property class beginning in the 2022 assessment year for taxes due in the fall 2023 and in spring 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a classification. No corresponding changes, however, were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines a mathematical formula used to calculate the number used No corresponding changes, however, were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines a mathematical formula used to calculate the number used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community college, and other taxing entities. The result? A higher percentage for residential property as a whole. The Iowa Department of Revenue didn't catch the oversight until October, when staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. The rate is set annually by the department and is designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more more than 3%. If aggregate property value for them increase more than 3%, their taxable values are rolled back, so the increase statewide is 3%. With former multi-residential erroneously 
included staff calculated a rollback rate of 56.5%, compared to what should be 54.6%. So the consequence is residential property owners will be paying a penalty or effectively a property tax increase, contrary to what lawmakers intend, intended, said Senator Dan Dawson, our council bluffs who chairs the Iowa Senate Committee on Tax Policy. To fix the oversight, the governor's office filed the bill in the Senate that carves out a former multi-residential, all former multi-residential properties from calculating the property tax rollback rate for 2022 residential property tax assessments. But with local governments now in the throes of setting their budgets to take effect July 1st, the error by the state has thrown the process into disarray and may cause some to lose millions of dollars they planned on or raise tax rates more than they wanted. Cities and counties are required to have their budgets approved and certified to the state and county auditor by March 31st. School districts are required to have their budgets set by April 15th. Dawson proposed amending the bill extending the budget deadline for cities and counties to finalize their budgets from March 13th to April 15th. But 603 of Iowa's 938 cities already have set their maximum levy based on the rollback rate published by the state, said Daniel Stalder with the Iowa League of Cities. Iowa City could lose out on $1.7 million in planned revenue under the bill. According to the city officials, Marion City Manager Ryan Waller told the Gazette he estimated the city could lose out more could lose out on more than $4,437,000 of revenue. Tom Cope, a lobbyist representing Coralville and Cedar Falls, noted the only communication cities and counties received about the rollback rate was the 56.5% number published by the Department of Revenue in October. Every city finance person then started the budget process and reasonably relied on that number, Cope said, adding there was no correction from the department. As a result, the city of Coralville passed a resolution January 24th setting its maximum tax levy and a February 14th public hearing on its proposed 2024 fiscal year budget. They had gone through all the hard work of the budgeting process, Cope said. All of those hard decisions have been made. Don't move the football. At least give us a year to plan. In the end, the subcommittee advanced the bill for further discussion by the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Senator Pam Jochum, J-O-C-H-U-M, D. Dubuque, declined to sign off. As much as we'd like lower property taxes, at the same time, our citizens want safe communities, good schools, and quality of life back home, she said. So we were caught between a rock and a hard place in many ways trying, in trying to navigate these waters right now. I certainly don't see a problem in trying to delay it. And personally, I'd even like to see us maybe do some kind of backfill to help keep everybody whole in the meantime. Dawson acknowledged there should have been a better communication 
by state officials. To delay is likely a property tax increase for property tax owners, he said, however. This is why the property taxpayers struggle. Because of one formula calculation, all these taxing entities come here advocating to keep it higher, and the property taxpayer is wanting to know who is going to advocate for them. LGBTQ youth speak against GOP bills. I deserve to be valued. Written by Aaron Murphy and Tom Barton. Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. While LGBTQ children pleaded Tuesday with state lawmakers to be treated with decency and respect, supporters of Republican-led proposal to bar Iowa's public schools from teaching lesbian, gay, and transgender-themed issues mocked trans youth claimed that schools should follow Christian teachings, and blamed LGBTQ advocates for suicides and school shootings. It all came out of two legislative hearings at the Iowa Capitol on bills related to public education and LGBTQ-related issues. State House Republicans advanced three bills. Senate File 83, which would prohibit K-8 public schools from teaching gender identity, House File 9, which would require a parent's permission before public school staff could refer to a student by a different gender identity. House File 7, which would require a public which would require public universities to report to state lawmakers their definitions of dozens of terms, including many that are related to LGBTQ people or issues of race and diversity. At a legislative hearing on the proposal to prohibit K-8 schools from teaching about gender identity, some young LGBTQ Iowans told lawmakers how such bills impact them. When my mom told me about including many that are related to LGBTQ people or issues of race and diversity. At a legislative hearing on the proposal to prohibit K-8 schools from teaching about gender identity, some young LGBTQ Iowans told lawmakers how such bills impact them. When my mom told me about the bill, I felt angry. I said, Barry Stevens, a middle school student from West Des Moines, I deserve to be valued and protected. But this bill does the opposite of that. Stevens said a year ago when they started a, when they started sixth grade, they changed their pronouns. They said at school they were picked on and called homophobic slurs, but their teachers and administration were supportive and took steps to protect them. That would be impossible under this bill, Stevens said. I need you to protect me and others like me. Sarah Smallcotter and her transgender daughter, Odin, from Fort Dodge, both spoke at the hearing. Sarah Smallcarter described Odin coming out Odin coming out just before the start of second grade and how adamant and excited she was. That's all we're asking for is that you treat our kids in schools with basic human decency and respect. That's it, Sarah said. This proposed law would deny that. It would target our children. Odin also spoke, saying she gets bullied at school for being transgender. I get bullied at school a lot because they say I'm a boy, she said. I'm trying my best to make them understand. The Trevor Project, an LGBTQ plus youth suicide and crisis prevention organization, said such measures add to existing stigma and discrimination of LGBTQ youth who already face higher health and suicide risks than their peers. 
When given access to spaces that affirm their gender identity, they report fewer suicide attempts, the Trevor Project says. Supporters of the bill argued that the topic of gender identity would be exclusive to parents and their children and not discussed in public schools. Nicole Hasso, H-A-S-S-O, who ran, the Republican primary, who ran in the Republican primary for Congress in 2020, offered her thoughts on who is to blame for those elevated suicide rates among LGBTQ youth. Because of LGBTQ advocates' actions, their blood is on your hands. Every suicide, every school shooting, every school bullying, Hasso said. She said students should, not be, should be sent to school to be educated, not to be groomed. Another woman who spoke at the hearing used mocking air quotes when referring to transgender to a transgender boy, and multiple speakers insisted public schools should be following Christian values while educating students. Ryan Benn, a lobbyist for the Christian conservative advocacy organization, the family leader, called the discussion of gender identity theology and a religion of its own, and that it and that is anti-Christian. At a separate hearing on the bill that would prohibit schools from affirming or recognizing a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from parents, supporters argued the bill keeps parents informed and ensures the school employees can't hide information about a student's requested gender transition or identity from the child's parents. Children are the sole responsibility of the parents, said Patty Alexander, a retired teacher from Indianola. A teacher is not the parent. The teacher works for the parents and the school he or she is employed with. We need educators, schools, and administrators to stay in their lane. Critics said the measure undermines LGBTQ support in schools and endangers the safety, welfare, and autonomy of transgender and gender-fluid youth and places educators in an impossible position, risk legal and career-ending consequences or forcibly out LGBTQ students grappling with their personal identity to potentially unsupportive or abusive family members. We encourage them to come out to their parents on their own time. They are the best judges of their own safety, not bureaucrats in Des Moines, said Damian Thompson, director of public policy and communication for the advocacy group Iowa Safe Schools. This bill is a form of government overreach that ultimately puts students in direct danger. Thompson said transgender youth face a real risk of rejection by adults. Iowa Safe Schools offers services to LGBTQ and allied youth and students who have been bullied. Many of the students who we work with one-on-one have been kicked out of their homes due to abusive and non-affirming environments, he said. Organizations representing Iowa school boards, school administrators, and teachers note the bill forces them to violate both state and federal law, including Title IX, that prohibits sex-based discrimination and harassment in any school or education program. The Iowa Department of Education also states the preference for the use of pronouns should be the choice of the student and that the school leaders work collaboratively with students and families while honoring the choice of the students. Republicans advance Senate File 83, making it eligible for consideration by the full Senate Education Committee. Later Tuesday, Republicans advanced both House File 7 and House File 9 out of the House Education Committee, 
making both eligible for debate by the full House. Both pass on party line vote with Democrats opposed. The committee discussion on House File 7, including testy exchanges between Representative Representative Art Stain, S-T-A-E-D, Cedar Rapids, and bill sponsor Representative Skyler Wheeler, R. Hull. Stade questioned the need for the legislation with accused Republicans and accused Republicans of a witch hunt. Wheeler and fellow bill sponsor Representative Stephen Holt, R. Dennison, took umbrage at his remarks. Took umbrage, U-M-B-R-A-G-E, at his remarks. Bluffs Rancher takes second. Vermersh, V-E-R-M-E-E-R-S-C-H, receives $5,000 prize as a runner-up in Iowa Farm Bureau competition. <clears throat> Written by Tim Johnson. Matt Vermersh, owner-operator of Mud Ridge Ranch in rural county and rural council bluffs with his wife Jocelyn placed second out of three finalists for the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation's Grow Your Future Award and received $5,000 prize. The final placings were decided after a pitch-off Saturday at the Iowa Farm Bureau's Young Farmer Conference at the Iowa Event Center in Des Moines. Each finalist had seven minutes to make a pitch to a panel of three judges, Vermish said. The finalists were judged on how well their business generates income, how unique it is, how big and or how numerous their customers are, and the future of the market, how it supports the community, how well they use their strengths and presentation skills demonstrated during their pitch. I really just emphasized how I got into it, falling in love with farming and raising livestock, he said. He also mentioned that he is charting his own path and not following the crowd. First place and of $7,500 prize went to Tanner Sains of Recommended Farms in Alamake, A-L-L-A-M-A-K-E-E, County, who annually grows 5,000 to 8,000 pounds of organic gourmet mushrooms and sells them at grocery stores, farmers markets, and to local restaurants. Third place, and $2,500 $2, went to Annie Palmer of H8R Acres LLC in Warren County, who raises pure Berkshire feeder pigs and Navajo churro sheep, which she plans to market to local restaurants. I thought they were all fantastic pres- presentations, Vermish said. They thought I did pretty well. I was pretty lucky to get second. It was pretty cool to be included in it and pretty humbling, I guess, to be in that competition. Vermish raises Scottish Highland cattle and goats and also has some lean hens. Scottish Highlands can thrive on grass and produce meat and produ- produce meat that is tender and low fat in cholesterol, he said. Their beef is very nutrition nutrition dense, he said. Vermish is interested in direct marketing beef, but since not everyone wants or has storage space for half or a quarter of beef, he is thinking about selling packages that include include beef, chicken, eggs, and maybe some pork from other livestock farm on a subscription basis. 
He would sign up customers who would pay him to deliver a package of assorted cuts each week. He has a small egg business selling to neighbors and relatives and is looking to get more chickens. He bought he first bought goats to keep grass down on his family's acreage. This year, the couple started marketing them to target graze to target graze problem vegetation for public and private entities. They own the local affiliate of Goats on the Go, which in the city of Council Bluffs hired to clear vegetation along the riverfront, as well as Big Lake Park. Vermish plans to use the prize money from the contest to buy some Scottish Highland steers and materials to build a mobile chicken facility. The chicken enclosure would be a large pen mounted on a metal frame that could be lifted with a forklift or loader and moved. Every day, you're moving it in the length of the pen, he said. Every day, they're getting access to new ground, new plants, and seeds. You're not building up the waste, the manure. Chicken manure is high in nitrogen. It's a good nutrient to have. The Scottish Highlands have been well-received, he said. The interest right now is very high, he said. I'm also a buyer trying to expand. So while it's fun to sell them, it's not fun to buy. Vermish has tried rotational grazing on a limited basis but needs more fencing and more infrastructure, he said. The conference was great, Vermish said. I hadn't been there before, he said. It was really cool seeing how much interest there is in agriculture. He connected with some other southwest Iowa farmers and went on a tour of the Iowa State University feed mill. I went to Iowa State to school. I went to Iowa State to school, and my senior project was to design a grain storage complex, so it was cool to see see it all come to f- fruition, F-R-U-I-T-I-O-N, he said. Other activities include listening to guest speakers and participating in breakout sessions. Vermish and his wife, Jocelyn, have two sons, Boone, age one and a half, and Cam, four months. Face of the day, courtesy Midlands Humane Society, Bailey the dog. Bailey the dog was recently hit by a car and needs surgery on her leg, and Midlands Midlands Humane Society is asking area animal lovers to help pitch in. Bailey is a German Shepherd mix who recently came to the shelter, 1020 Railroad Avenue, as an owner surrender. She apparently had been struck by a car a few days prior to the incident. Shelter staff members describe her as shy and sweet, and she'll likely be in much better shape following surgical condition, can, surgical correction by an orthopedic specialist. Help her get healed on the road to living a normal life. Dono- donations can be made in person at their Midlands website and on their Facebook page as well. The estimated cost of the surgery and recovery is $3,500. In other shelter news, Midlands thanks Lewis Central's leadership students who came by the shelter Thursday to volunteer. They cleaned out kennels, they cleaned out canned kettles, tidied up around the place, and did dishes. The shelter can have over 150 animals at any given time, so volunteers help keep the ship moving straight. Give Midlands a call if you or your organization would like to schedule some volunteer time. More information about fostering, volunteering, and donation opportunities can be made at MidlandsHumaneSociety.org or or by calling 712-396-2270. Like their Facebook page to keep up with the daily shelter news.
A shelter can also be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter and Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. Getting outdoors benefits mental, physical health, even in winter. Every year, I make some sort of New Year's Eve resolution. For the last couple of years, I've opted for a list of things I wanted to accomplish instead. I've noticed that most of the time, increasingly more the older I get, my goals end up being health-related. To lose weight, to work out, to eat better, to feel better. In 2021 and 2022, my mental health became my focus. I put in hard work and am able to better control my anxiety and stress levels. I learned to love myself better, and I feel good about how far I've come. This year, I knew I was desperate to prioritize my physical health by taking action. My good intentions in years past hadn't gotten me that far. My commitment to health often fizzled out in a few months. I joined the YMCA, the Charles E. Lakin branch, and Council Bluffs, in Council Bluffs is down the street from our office and is amazing and signed up for the Weight Watchers app, where I've spent what's likely hours scanning foods and learning what and what doesn't work for me. I lost 14 pounds in one month, something I mostly attribute to kicking sugary drinks to the curb and finally breaking up with Scooter's Coffee. In parentheses, don't get me wrong, it's still a nice treat, especially with the number of low-fat and sugar-free options. Close parentheses. I also happened <clears throat> I also happened upon a 31-mile dog walk challenge in January fundraiser on Facebook. It was right up my alley. The challenge encourages participants to walk 1 mile each day with their dog. It's not only it not only benefits me, both me and my dog, but also raising funds and awareness for a cause dear to my heart. To write love on our arms an organization I followed since I was a teenager that focuses on providing hope and resources to those struggling with depression, anxiety, addiction, or suicidal thoughts. Additionally, I recently read that an hour of walking reduces the risk of major depression by 26%, according to a study from the Harvard, from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It was a no-brainer for me. Support a good cause, prioritize my own mental and physical health by getting outdoors to walk, and to spend some time with Sully, the best boy ever. Win, win, win. We spent a lot of time walking near our neighborhood, including along the Omaha Riverfront Trail, where we've seen so many eagles hunting for food along the Missouri River. As a volunteer at Midlands Humane Society in Council Bluffs, we added about six miles walking with numerous adorable, adoptable pups over the course of a couple weeks. It was hardly all rainbows and sunshine, though. It was January in the Midwest, meaning ice, snow, and increasingly cold temperatures made it hard to get any progress in some days. When I put on my long johns under my clothes a couple weeks ago to head to MHS for volunteer dog walking, I was reminded of something someone told me soon after I arrived for six months abroad in Bergen, B-E-R-G-E-N, Norway. There is no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. And while I know there is, in fact, bad weather, it helped frame how far being prepared could get get us. The ice was still a bit dodgy, but that antidote kept me warm for one mile for the one mile with Sully and four miles with a number of dogs in need of loving homes that week. 
This past Friday, eager to get out into our newsroom's newly expanded coverage area, I took a drive out to Nebraska's Plate River State Park for a hike on the Waterfall Trail. The idea was great in theory. Sully and I were out enjoying nature, but I quickly learned my tennis shoes wouldn't do the trick. The trail, typically a dirt path, was largely largely covered in ice, and the farther along we got, the more I realized I need to invest in a pair of some hiking boots, particularly something good with snow and ice if I'm heading off the paved trails we've typically traveled this month. At one point, as I attempted to take a slight slope near the waterfall, I slipped with each step, leading me to sit down and scoot across a sketchy pass. Sully is the best listener, my sweet boy. He just waited patiently watching me. After backtracking and taking a different path down the waterfall, all seemed to be well. Still, I'm laughing at myself for preaching bad weather versus bad clothing and then proceeding to not take my own words to practice. With the ice, we didn't get as many miles in Friday as I would have liked, and with the weekend temperatures quickly dropping, we had to opt for shorter walks and skip some days altogether. Still, we were able to get outdoors and prove that walking outside is possible in the Midwest, even during the colder winter months. I'm looking forward to warmer temps, especially as we navigate single-degree temperatures and navigate degree, negative-degree wind chills this week. My hope is to get out to more local parks and trails as we move into warmer weather months. If you've got a suggestion for a beautiful dog-friendly walk in the southwest Iowa, Walk in southwest Iowa or southwest southeast Nebraska. Drop me a line at Rachel George, Rachel.george at nonpareilonline.com. And this was written by Rachel George. Humor. I married a bona fide cover girl. Jerry Zizma, C-E-Z-I-M-A, Tribune News Service. I'm not one to make blanket statements, but I will make one now. We have enough blankets in our house to cover the Green Bay Packers. At last count, which entailed going to every room with a calculator, in parentheses, I could have used a pedometer too, and parentheses, there were 17 blankets scattered about the place, and that doesn't include the one in my car or the many that are hiding in closets or in drawers or even in bins I haven't looked in yet. I did look inside an ottoman in the family room where there are half a dozen blankets, then, of course, there are the bedroom blankets, but they don't count. Beds are supposed to have blankets. Rocking chairs aren't. The only places in the house that don't have blankets are the three bathrooms, but that's only because they would end up clocking the toilets. And I just remembered all the beach blankets we have. Frankie Avalon and Annette Funcello, F-U-N-I-C-E-L-L-O, would be impressed. Our house has to be the blanket capital of the United States because my wife, Sue, is a bonafide cover girl. I like blankets, she explained. It was the understatement of the century. Sue not only buys blankets, is there a cover charge, I once asked. She also makes them, and I must admit they're beautiful. She gives some of them to our grandchildren, who order blankets from her like they were shopping on Amazon, except the kids get them for free. Sue hasn't made a blanket for me, but if I keep complaining about all the ones that are taking over the house, I might suffocate with, you guessed it, a blanket. But it won't be one Sue made, because she's too smart to leave evidence. I can just envision the crime scene. Cop. To Sue. You say your husband smothered himself with a blanket last night? Sue. Yes, officer. It must have ridden up over his face while he was sleeping. 
Cop. Why do you have extra blankets on the bed? Sue. It was cold. We like to save energy, so I got a second blanket for each of us. Cop. The one on your side is nice. Sue. Proudly. I made it myself. Cop. Did your husband ever complain about the blankets in the house? Sue, hesitating. Uh, not that I can recall. Cop to the first responders. All right, let's get this guy out of here. Cover him up. Sue, don't use a blanket. I'll have to wash it. Keith Morrison would have would have a field day with this, with this on. Dateline, which Sue and I sometimes watch, though we regularly watch the various FBI, Chicago, and Law & Order shows, as well as movies and streaming series. We do so while sitting in comfy chairs with our feet up and our legs covered by soft, cozy blankets. I will concede that they serve a purpose, which is to help me fall asleep before the closing credits. Though if I have popcorn, Sue will warn me not to get buttery kernels on my blanket. At least that won't happen with the blanket in the back seat of my car, which Sue put there in case we break down. It will keep us warm while we're waiting for a tow truck, she reasoned. I haven't looked in Sue's car, but I bet there's a blanket in there too. We have a lot of pillows, but not as many as our friends Hank and Angela Richard, who must have more pillows than any couple in America. Sue and I recently told them about all our blankets. You've got us beat, Angela said. I may have to start a new collection. Hank sighed and said, oh no. Don't complain, I told him. And be sure to sleep with one eye open. Jerry Zizma writes a humor column for Tribune News Service, and Lizzie is the author of six books. Email jerryz111 at optonline.net and blog jerryzizma.blogspot.com. You are listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, February 1st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Mallory Larson from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877 877- Four oh four seven. My mistake. Eight seven seven four oh four four seven four seven. For today's obituaries, we begin with Hayden Drake Hoffman. Hayden Drake Hoffman, the son of Heidi Willage, W E I L A G E, and Harold Hoffman Jr., was born January sixteenth, two thousand three, in Omaha, Nebraska. Hayden passed away January 28, 2023, in Omaha at the age of 20 years. He is survived by his parents, Heidi Wheelage and Malvern of Malvern, Iowa, and Harold Hoffman Jr. of Oakland, Iowa. His grandparents, Gary and Mary Beth Nealon of Oakland, Bonnie Hoffman of Hancock, Iowa, and Bonnie Wheelage of Council Bluffs. His siblings, Holding Catherine Hoffman of Oakland and Hunter Hoffman of Oakland. Step siblings Danny, Dana, D A N A N E, Gleason of Ankeny, Iowa, Jake Wheelage of Glenwood, Iowa, Haley Fields of Griswold, Iowa, and Sierra Wheelage of Griswold. His nephews and nieces Wacy, River, Aaliyah, Levi, Adolin, William, and Lillian, and his aunts and uncles, Robin Bennett of Schaller, Iowa, Missy Whitfield of 
Nawada, Oklahoma, Patricia Hoffman of Des Moines, Iowa, Monica Martin of Avoca, Iowa, A-V-O-C-A, Shad Wheelage of Polk County, Iowa. A funeral service will be held on Friday, February 3rd, 2023, 2 p.m. at the Oakland United Methodist Church. Interment will be in the Bell, Bell Knapp Cemetery west of Oakland. A celebration of life will be held at the Oakland Community Building following the interment at Belknap Cemetery. Visitation with the family will be on Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Oakland United Methodist Church. Memorials are suggestion, suggested to the Hayden Hoffman Memorial Fund. Riken Feith Funeral Home. The second obituary is for Sergeant Dominic J. Vance. Sergeant jo Dominic J. Vance, age 22, of San Diego, California, passed away from a motorcycle accident on January 3, 2023, in San Diego. Dominic was born on February 24, 2000, at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, to Douglas and Sabrina Vance. Sergeant Vance was a fixed-wing aircraft loadmaster for the United States Marine Corps in San Diego. Sergeant Vance had a tour of duty in North Africa, Debuti, D-J-I-B-O-U-T-I. Sergeant Vance was affiliated with the American Legion Post 374 and Murderments Riders, M-U-R-D-R-E-D-R-M-E-E-T-S, Riders. He was preceded in death by his uncle Edward Wilson, stepfather Michael Myers. Survivors include his significant other, Kelly Burke of San Diego, parents Douglas and Sarah Vance of Omaha, Nebraska, mother Sabrina Windman Myers, and significant other Jacob Kirkman of Yuma, Arizona, three brothers Brandon Chenoweth of Moore, Oklahoma, Taylor and Irene Debert of Glendale, Arizona, Leland Vance of Omaha, Sister Serenity Vance of Omaha, paternal grandparents Nance and Terrence Vance of Carson, Iowa, maternal grandparents Art and Ellie Wyndham, maternal step-grandparents Gail and Jerry Kellison. Visitation with the family on Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Funeral service on Saturday 11 on Saturday 11 a.m. at the funeral home with military honors rendered by the United States Marine Corps. Cremation to follow. Burial of cremation cremated remains at later date at Omaha National Cemetery. Mary J. Berryman. Mary J. Berryman, age 66, of Council Bluffs, passed away on Sunday, January 29th of 2023 at Jeannie Edmondson Hospital. Mary was born on December 1st, 1956 in Omaha, Nebraska to the late Barney and Helen Reese. Mary earned her bachelor's degree from the University of California. Mary was a salesperson for Millard Lumber. Mary married James Berryman on August 27, 1992. Mary was a member of City Light Church Council Bluffs Builders Association Superintendent for the Pot 
Watomie County H4 First Program Council Bluff Saddle Club. Mary is survived by her husband, James Berryman, of Council Bluffs, daughter Catherine and Kelly Kaufman of Council Bluffs, Sarah Brewing and Glenwood of Glenwood, Iowa, Charlotte Berryman of Council Bluffs, sons Creighton and Dawn Berryman of Green Bay, Wisconsin, William and Donna Berryman of Belvenue, Nebraska, 12 grandchildren, 7 great-grandchildren, sisters Carol Struve of Omaha, Kathy and Don Twig, T-W-E-I-G, of Estes, E-S-T-E-S, Park, Colorado, nieces and nephews and other relatives. Celebration of Life on Celebration of Life Service on Friday, 11 a.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Cremation Memorials to Victory Riding Academy, Incorporated, 4906 South 180th Street, Omaha, Nebraska. Evelyn M. Westerholt. Evelyn M. Westerholt, 97, of Fremont, Nebraska, passed away Monday, January 30th, 2023, at her home. Surviving family, sons Ronald Westerholt of Council Bluffs, Steve Westerholt of Lincoln, Nebraska, four grandsons, three granddaughters, two great-grandsons, and two great-granddaughters. Sister Glennis, G-L-E-N-Y-S, Taber of Lincoln, Brother Dewey Foster Jr. of Lincoln. Funeral 10 a.m. Thursday day, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, at Bluffs Trinity Lutheran Church, northwest of Fremont Memorials, to the church. Visitation Ludvigin, L-U-D-V-I-G-S-E-N, Mortuary Chapel in Fremont. Wednesday, 3 to 8 p.m. Family present 6 to 7.30 p.m. Order of the Eastern Star Service at 7.30 p.m. Online guest book at www.ludvigsenmortuary.com. L-U-D-V-I-G-S-E-N Mortuary. Veronica Morehouse Fink. Veronica Lynn Morehouse Fink. Born August 2nd, 1990, passed away on January 29th, 2023. Visitation Sunday, February 5th from 5 to 7 p.m. at West Center Chapel. Service Monday, February 6th, 11 a.m. at West Center Chapel. To view a live broadcast of the services, go to www.heafey.com. And click the view live, and click the view live cast button. Intermet Evergreen Memorial Park Cemetery. On nutrition, what's for breakfast other than eggs? Written by Barbara Intermill. We buy eggs from a chicken farmer in our area. He leaves them at my son-in-law's veterinary clinic. We pick them up when we come home with the dogs. When we come in with dogs, horses, or cows. Last week, we got the news that we would need to pay more for the homegrown eggs, and it's still a lot less than what we pay at the store. No argument here. We're thankful to know he still has a healthy flock. Meanwhile, billions of chickens and their eggs in the United States and other parts of the world have been destroyed by avian influenza or bird flu. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the fast-burning virus can wipe out an entire flock within a couple of days. Along with this staggering blow to egg farmers comes a nutritional cost as well. Egg protein is one of the most complete and easily digested proteins on the planet, and eggs provide an array of essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, a scarce nutrient in many foods. They are also a good source of choline, C-H-O-L-I-N-E, a nutrient especially important during pregnancy to support an unbaby's unborn baby's brain development. Eggs have even survived the great debate over cholesterol and heart disease. Once vilified for their high cholesterol content, in 2013, a growing body of evidence finally led the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology to reverse their previous stance that egg consumption leads to heart disease. In fact, eggs are now considered a nutrient-dense protein, according to the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans. So until our beloved egg supply re- is replenished, what for breakfast is still that still supplies adequate protein? Lo and behold, my inbox just delivered 10 eggless breakfast recipes from Dole. See www.dole.com backslash en backslash recipes backslash explore backslash meals backslash breakfast. Since I cook simple, especially for breakfast, these were a few I found most intriguing. 1. Protein-packed breakfast tacos. Heat corn tortillas in the microwave and stuff with chopped sweet potato, quinoa, and kale salad. Mix. Quinoa is a really good source of protein. Chopped red pepper, jalapeno, and roasted pepitas, in parentheses, pumpkin seeds. An easy one to pack and eat when when you get to work, if need be. Two, sunrise pizza. Top a toasted, frozen, whole grain waffle with honey-flavored yogurt, your protein source, sliced bananas, and canned mandarin oranges, drained, of course. Drizzle with honey and add a sprinkle of cinnamon. Peanut butter burritos. Three, spread spread peanut butter, another source of protein, onto whole grain tortillas, and top with diced pineapple, banana, kiwi, strawberries, or any combination of fruit you'd like. I added that last part. Sprinkle a flaked coconut roll. Sprinkle with flaked coconut, roll up tortilla, and roll out the door. Each recipe on the website comes with a food nutrition, full nutritional breakdown. Enjoy. Barbara Intermill is a registered dietitian. Email her at barbara at Q-U-I-N-N-E-S-S, essentialnutrition.com. Ask Amy. Wedding snub would continue estrangement. Dear Amy, I've begun the arduous task of compelling a guest list for my upcoming wedding. While discussing this with my parents, I made it very clear that I was not going to invite my first cousin, Anna. For background, my aunt in parentheses, Anna's mom, died of cancer in 2019. It was devastating for the family. It was especially hard for me as I took care of her as she got sick, something Anna did not do. My uncle remarried 18 months later. Anna is still angry at her father and also blames our family for choosing his side, even though it's not like we could stop him from remarrying. For this reason, she has gotten no contact with us. 
This was also devastating, as Anna is the only relative who lives anywhere near me, and we used to be close. A few months ago, I I attended the wedding of Anna's sister. Anna was the maid of honor. She refused to acknowledge my presence or even say a word to any of the family. My parents want me to invite Anna to keep alive the possibility of reconciliation. They also just feel it's the right thing to do as we're inviting the entire rest of the family, including her siblings. Additionally, the family believes that she is struggling with bipolar disorder. Her mother also suffered from this. My parents are paying for the wedding, so I feel I should defer to their wishes, but this is an issue that has caused so much emotional grief over the last few years, and I feel so personally hurt over her silence. Should I invite her? Conflicted bride. Dear bride, leaving Anna off your guest list could place her other immediate family members in a very tough spot. Her siblings, for instance, might also feel compelled to stay home. Excluding her would send a message to her that you're absolutely done. I used to believe that wedding invites are meant to acknowledge those relationships that have remained healthy and close over the years. Over time, I've come to understand that invitations can also serve as an optimistic signal for what might be for what might be. Weddings, after all, are an aspirational family events. I'd ask you to imagine yourself 10 years from now. Imagine that Anna continues to struggle and continues to adhere to her no-contact choice. Given this worst-case scenario, would you look back and say, wow, I'm glad she was my only family member I excluded from my wedding? Or would you say to yourself, in the name of family harmony, I tried to be inclusive to reconcile. I wish it had worked. To some extent, this is a test of your own character and your own capacity to rise above very challenging to rise above a very challenging family situation. If you invite Anna, there is some likelihood that she will decline to attend, but at least you would have opened the door. Dear Amy, recently you ran a letter from Tempting Trainer, a total jerk of a man who was bragging about his conquest with his female female clients. I can't figure out why you waste space on garbage like this from upset dear upset jerks sometimes inspire some of my most memorable fights of outrage i'm here for it you can ask amy dixon dickinson at ask amy at amy dickinson.com iowa bill capping commercial vehicle lawsuits advances caleb mccullough m-c-c-u-l-l-o-u-g-h Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill that would cap non-economic damages in lawsuits against truckers and commercial drivers on Tuesday. The bill, House Study Bill 114, would limit damages related to death, injuries, and other non-economic damages to $1 million in lawsuits involving commercial vehicle companies. The cap would be indexed to the rate of inflation every two years. It also provides heightened protection from liability for trucking companies in many cases when a driver acts with negligence. During a subcommittee meeting on Tuesday, supporters of the bill from trucking and business groups said it would prevent so-called nuclear verdicts that award tens of millions of dollars in injury and and wrongful death lawsuits against trucking companies. They also argued the bill would keep insurance rates for business down in the state. David Scott, a lobbyist for the Iowa Motor Truck Association, said the goal of the legislation was to provide certainty 
for commercial vehicle owners on their level of liability in accidents. We brought this bill forward in hopes to bring some fairness to nuclear verdicts around the country, he said. The legislation provides a level of predictability to 804,000 commercial vehicles in Iowa. There have been several cases cases naturally of juries in trucking lawsuits returning multi-million dollar verdicts over the last decade. And in 2021, a Florida jury delivered a $1 billion verdict, $1 billion verdict in a wrongful death case against two trucking companies. The measure, the measure is supported by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and follows the failure to pass a similar, similar bill in the Iowa House last year. Republican leaders paired the measure with a prohibition on vaccine, ma- vaccine mandates in the same bill, but they were unable to garner enough Republican votes to pass it. Business groups also weighed in the support of the bill on Tuesday, saying it would provide stability for trucking industry as well as manufacturing and other businesses that rely on trucking to move supplies. The bill is crucially important to business competitiveness in our state, said Joe Murphy president of the Iowa Business Council, which represents Iowa's largest employers. So as we look to bring about more predictability, more balance in our system, we're in support of this bill. Opponents included lawyers and justice-based groups who said high-dollar verdicts are not an issue in Iowa. They also argue that insurance rates, one issue brought up by supporters, were not as high as supporters predicted. Kelly Pash Kelly Paschke, P-A-S-C-H-K-E, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association for Justice, said the negligence protection measures will shield trucking companies when they hire employees with known drug addictions, allowing employees to go over allowable hours or don't make their drivers maintain vehicles. It said to the trucking companies, you can be negligent, we're going to hide it, she said. Law- Lawmakers also are also moving on to a bill to cap non-economic damages from medical malpractice lawsuits in the state at $1 million, saying it would provide the same protections for the medical interest industry. At a three-member subcommittee on Tuesday, Republican Representative Phil Thompson of Boone and Bill Gustus, Gustoff, G-U-S-T-O-F-F, of Des Moines both wanted to vote to advance the bill, while Democratic Republic Representative Sammy Sheets, S-C-H-E-E-T-Z, of Cedar Rapids, opposed it. It is frankly unfortunate that every time a commercial motor, co- motor vehicle is involved in an accident, some people see dollar signs, Thompson said. Citing research from the Iowa Association for Justice, Sheets said that the bill would make Iowa the first state in the nation to cap damages for trucking companies specifically. He said juries should retain the right to determine damages in a lawsuit. For a long, long time in this state, we've been trusting our neighbors, our peers, to sit in a courtroom, listen to testimony, and make that decision on behalf of everybody in the state, Sheets said. But for some reason, there's there's a sentiment running through this building this week that we should take this right away from Iowans to decide this. Lawmakers advance bill limiting length of freight trains in Iowa. 
written by Tom Burton, Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. A state law advanced Thursday by a three-member panel of House lawmakers would limit the length of freight trains traveling through Iowa. The subcommittee voted unanimously to forward the House Study Bill 88 to the full House Transportation Committee for passage that would limit the length of freight trains operating in the state to 8,500 feet, or roughly 1.6 miles. An identical bill clearly initial review in the 2022 Iowa legislature, but have died in committee. We've been stuck like we're all at a railroad crossing. Once I get past 100 cars, I get pissy. I do understand that subcommittee member Representative Betts Brent Segrist, S-I-E-G-R-I-S-T, our council bluffs, said. I'm inclined to move forward, although I'm not sure I will fully support it in committee yet. I want to hear more. I have some questions, but at the same time, I'm not totally opposed to it. Freight trains have been getting longer, nearly three miles in some cases. A U.S. Government Accountability Office report from 2019 found that the average length increased by about 25% since 2008. The average length of near 1.4 miles, with average lengths of near 1.4 miles in 2017. That has raised concerns that trains may block traffic more often at road crossings, impeding emergency responders and prompting unsafe pedestrian behavior, such as climbing through stop trains. And that brings us to the end of today's reading for the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Mallory Larson from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.